when you're walking on the surface and it rains, where does the rain go? It goes underground or it goes into the soil. It might not even, it just lands on the ground. The story doesn't end there. <laughs> the story continues on literally through the soil, through the bedrock, into the earth, beneath our feet, and then sometimes back to the surface where we want to fish, where we want to swim, where we want to think that this is a clean spring and I want to drink from this clear water. And although the water might be clear, it does not mean it's clean. Welcome to the 281st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Projects podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. A peek at the world beneath our feet can reveal the sins of the surface. I thought about that recently while taking a tour of Niagara Cave in southeastern Minnesota's Karst country. Niagara, which is owned by the Bishop family near the town of Harmony, hosts thousands of visitors a year who are seeking to learn more about the dark underworld that dominates this part of the Midwest. The commercial cave features an underground stream and a 60-foot waterfall. It's a perfect place to get a sense of how quickly water moves through karst topography, which is dominated by limestone formations characterized by cracks, holes, and gaps. Common features in karst regions such as southeastern Minnesota, northeastern Iowa, and southwestern Wisconsin are sinkholes, springs, disappearing streams, bluffs, and, of course, cave systems. All that makes for a dramatic landscape, but it also means water can travel from the surface to an underground aquifer in a very short time, sometimes within a matter of hours or even minutes. And those aquifers provide drinking water for farms and communities in the area, as well as serve as a source for streams and springs. Because of how dynamic water movement is in the region, any contamination from the surface can quickly make its way into groundwater. Of particular concern is how much nitrate is making its way from the soil surface down through those cracks and crevices and ending up in well water. High nitrate exposure is a significant health risk, especially for infants, pregnant women, and people with certain pre-existing conditions. In fact, nitrate-nitrogen contamination is the number one water quality issue in southeastern Minnesota. And the top source of that contamination is row crop fields and manure runoff. Corn production is heavily reliant on nitrogen fertilizer, and livestock waste is full of this element. But through its work with the Soil Health Network in the region, LSP has helped farmers control water runoff by utilizing practices like cover cropping, no-till, diverse rotations, and managed rotational grazing. Such techniques build the kind of healthy soil that can hang on to nutrients and store water, and even reduce the amount of fertilizer that needs to be applied in the first place. To highlight the vulnerability of our groundwater, as well as how soil-healthy farming can help protect it, LSP recently held an event at Niagara Cave. After tours of the caverns in which we saw water dripping from the rock after a recent rainstorm, Participants had a chance to learn more about the relationship between farming, karst, and groundwater from experts in hydrogeology, agronomy, and soil health. After the event, I had a chance to talk to Aaron Bishop, whose family has owned Niagara Cave since 1995. Aaron, who studied geology and leads tours of the cave, has seen firsthand the relationship between land use on the surface and the health of our water system below. He's become even more aware of that connection recently, now that he and his wife, Amy, have purchased a farm in the area. Aaron started our conversation by describing just how quickly water can move through a few hundred feet of rock. Depending on where you are in the cave, it depends. At the very beginning, where you go down a main series of stairs, about 100 steps to get into the main cave system itself, we can get drips from the ceiling within hours, uh, actually within an hour 
of a heavy rain event, especially if the ground is already saturated uh, from previous rains or, or snow melt. At the very end of the cave, you're about 200 feet down, and the water that drips from the ceiling, uh, coming from stalactites themselves, is likely at least several days, if not older. We do see an influx of water dripping from those formations, again, after a very heavy rain, uh, again, a couple days after that. But there is one part of the last room we call the, the shower at the end of the cave where that exhibits a display of, of, of water more quickly than the stalactites and other speleothems. It's within hours. I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever actually measured the time for that particular one because most rains happen at night and I'm not usually just hanging out there at night to monitor that. But Yes, so depending on where you're at, even within the same room, you can have varying rates of water flow. And you had told a story about, I, I can't think what year it was, but you got a tremendous rainstorm here. It was like a, something that, for the history books, uh, describe that situation and kind of what the, you guys saw the immediate impact. Yeah, sure. So we're talking about the June 2008 flood. Um, I think it was June 10th. It was over a Sunday night. The ground had been saturated already with previous rain events, and so any amount of water after that was uh, just piled on to uh, the influx of water entering the cave. So we had, I think over the course of three storms within 24 hours, don't quote me on it, <laughs> ten, 10 plus inches of rain. Mm. And with those rain events came more water into the cave system than what could escape through Hawkeye Springs. And so as a result, the water in the cave began to back up, which it typically does during times of, of flooding. Every spring we get a little bit of a backup, but this was unending, it felt. We had water that continued to rise at about two to three inches per minute vertically. And this was Sunday night, and by Monday at about well, Monday morning, say 2.30 or so in the morning when we went to check out the cave, we couldn't hear the waterfall anymore. And that's the first thing we hear during times of heavy rain. When we go down the main set of stairs, you hear the roar of the waterfall, especially after heavy rains. But this time we couldn't hear it at all, which was a dreadful, dreadful silence. And we looked down, down the main set of stairs, and that very last step before getting onto that main passageway level was underwater. And so that means that the entire cave was basically underwater. Um, the entire waterfall room was underwater. There was no waterfall anymore since the water had risen beyond that point. Um, in fact, the water spilled out from the waterfall area and went downhill where it met the other side of the flood as water from the end of the cave was rising as well. So the two sources of water met partway between there and left uh, quite a bit of gravel there because the water, as it spilled over the Wishing Well waterfall area side, t dug up all of the floor and left it where it ran into the next wall of water. So that was a mess. Uh, and then, uh, well, actually, I say Monday evening after letting some of that water go down, and it did go down fairly rapidly. We had lights that we had to restring. We had mud that we had to push out. And there was, at the very bottom of the cave, after this was probably late Monday, maybe early Tuesday, there was at least a six, uh, I should say, a, um, eight to 12 inches of mud at the very bottom of the cave platforms, where we had to use push brooms and just shove it off the the edge into the river where it would continue to go downstream it was it was an incredible amount of of topsoil that i could see 
within this tiny crevice of a cave, knowing that on the surface there was so much more that was washed away and, and never to be seen or thought of, really, as, as it muddied the rivers. But yes, this particular flood in 2008, there was over 100 vertical feet of water in the cave, and uh, it, it, it took a lot of work to, to clean it up. And, and we still see, can see some of the muds on the walls. We can still see that watermark on the walls, and I, I hope I never see one higher than that. I can vouch for that because we went down there. Uh, Amy, your wife, took us on the tour, the tour group I was on, and she pointed out the high watermark and realized, why well, right now I would be underwater uh, if I was in this cave. It was really striking. And to realize that that was topsoil from the surface and I know when I was here before, we did a little tour. We were walked out, uh, up the road a little bit, and we saw a sinkhole that's just, I don't know, maybe it's 200 yards from here. Completely row crops all around it. So that's really kind of gives you a, a, a real eyeful of what that direct connection is. Yeah, absolutely. And and that particular sinkhole that you that you saw, you would, I mean, during that flood and during even floods after that, it's just a direct conduit to our cave system. And we know there are hundreds of thousands of sinkholes in this area leading somewhere uh, that is no longer the surface. So sinkholes, I don't think legally, are considered uh, water conduit, uh, waterway, but uh, <laughs> they, certainly have an Im they certainly impact where water flows and, and where it ends up. Ever since 2015, my brother and I have been taking, night, uh, taking water samples from various parts of the cave, whether it's the uh, stream at the very beginning, the stream at the very end, several formations in between, and definitely uh, formations at the very end of the cave. And what we've found are a couple things. One, there are, there are fewer nitrates at the very end of the cave. Water at the very end of the cave, in terms of the stream, so that kind of, and that kind of tells us that there's some dilution taking place. And there does seem, in fact, to be more water at the end of the cave than what goes off the waterfall. So basically, streams that come in to the cave are, are diluting those. There are formations at the end of the cave within 5, 10, 20 feet of each other that are kind of sporadic in their numbers. We, the highest we've had were, uh, was 24 parts per million of nitrates. Otherwise, they generally hover 12, 14 parts per million. There's one particular formation that I'm keeping an eye on. Uh, it, it's gone from five parts per million up approximately one part per million per year since then, and it is now about 12 parts per million. And it's been a steady, steady increase. I don't have too many data points. Uh, I've only, I only take a sample maybe once every two to three months if I'm lucky, but um, of the 20 or so data points that I have, it has been consistently going up. Uh, and that's kind of in the middle of the cave, underneath some, some row crops. I would like to have more data. <laughs> I, I could always have more. Um, and so that would be the goal, is to keep on taking more samples and, and see what things are doing, what, what the water's doing, and what the nitrates are doing. You know, it's only been seven years since we've been testing, but, but some of those, there, there are stories to tell in those nitrate numbers. I know you've kind of rel relatively recently uh, come in, bought some farmland, you and Amy. Does that make you, with your experience here, seeing the effects of land use on the surface, seeing what the impacts it has on the water, uh, and, and both the volume and the, the um, quality of the water, has that made you uh, think uh, differently about the responsibility you have now as a, as a farmland owner? I don't know if differently, but definitely more in depth. Um, I think, I think I, going into this wonderful opportunity, I think I recognize the importance of 
it, I guess. But again, now there's here's a great opportunity for us to work it and actually turn our understanding of how this works into hopeful action for protecting the soil health, protecting the water quality on our little area that we've got now. So one of the other presentations we had tonight was from Jeff Green, who's a hydrologist with the the Department of Natural Resources, Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And the one thing that really struck me about his presentation is they're seeing evidence of the nitrate contamination going deeper into the aquifer, which is really scary because once you get it down in there, it's almost impossible to clean up. Yeah, when you're giving these cave tours, do you do you talk about that? Try to get a, a message across to people that what you're seeing down here and, and why it is important for you to, to kind of be mindful of what's going on on the surface, that this is like one tour maybe they've taken in their life of a cave. And so on a day-to-day basis, they're not going to see these effects kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's one of those situations where you kind of have to read your audience. Sometimes they're very interested in such topics and sometimes they really could care less. <laughs> um, but I, I do try to fit that in when I can. And, and absolutely, just understanding that the effects nitrates has on humans, on the ecosystem, and just the fact that it isn't easy to clean up. It's almost impossible to clean up once it's in there um, unless the source is eliminated um, in, in terms of an abundance of nitrates. And so having, allowing individuals to see the cave recognize that there's more that goes on beneath their feet. I mean, when you're walking on the surface and it rains, where does the rain go? It goes underground or it goes into the soil. It might not even, it just lands on the ground. The story doesn't end there. (laughs) The story continues on literally through the soil, through the bedrock, into the earth, beneath our feet, and then sometimes back to the surface where we want to fish, where we want to swim, where we want to think that this is a clean spring and I want to drink from this clear water. And although the water might be clear, it does not mean it's clean, um, as evidenced from you know, understanding the cave and, and uh, seeing the, the numbers of nitrates in the very clear water of the wishing well and waterfall. I and mean, again, that's spring water before the spring. And uh, people ask all the time, is that clean? And that's a perfect segue for me to say, well, although it's clear, it's not clean, and this is why. My conversation with Aaron reminded me of a caving trip I took some time back with Martin Larson, a member of LSP Soil Health Network. Besides being an avid caver, Martin also raises crops in southeastern Minnesota using methods that build soil health. Through his work as a feedlot technician for the Olmstead County Soil and Water Conservation District, he studied the movement of water and how techniques like cover cropping help cut nitrate pollution. Working with Minnesota Department of Natural Resources groundwater hydrologist Jeff Green, Martin has helped extend significantly our knowledge of just how water systems and the contaminants that are along for the ride make their way through the region's vast, often mysterious, basement. Martin took me into Spring Valley Caverns, a five-mile-plus labyrinth, claustrophobic passages and crawl spaces, rooms with vaulted ceilings and pits that drop to dark depths. In spots, moisture from the hayfield 45 feet above us literally rained from the limestone dolostone ceiling. In other places, water made its journey via steady dripping. During our subterranean hike, Martin talked to me about how his experiences as a caver, farmer, and researcher have solidified his belief in building healthier soil. No caving trip is complete without a story of an exciting discovery. So we'll start out with Martin describing one of the strangest things he's come across underground thus far. Oh, I think the coolest thing I've seen was the Holy Grail sinkhole, which it was a, 
we called it the skylight in the Holy Grail cave, and and it was in the moon and stars room. Oddly enough, you know, because we were, you know, it's a celestial name to this to this room, and and the reason it was called that is because you looked at the ceiling and it looked like there was a moon there and with speckles around it, huh. so it looked like the moon and stars. And and in that room, there was this crevice, really tall crevice, you know, that went up and you couldn't really see the top of the crevice. And uh, periodically, you'd find dead mice in that room. Like, well, they're getting down here somewhere, <laughs> you know, whatever. And then we found a dead raccoon. Oh. Oh, well, did that wash in? No, it probably didn't, you know, flood in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we started to see cave crickets. So cave cr- crickets are an insect that typically we don't find deep inside of a cave. We find them near entrances. Well, there must be an entrance somewhere. Yeah. There must be an opening up there somewhere. And then it was in April, in uh, April 2015, uh, we were taking a new caver through Holy Grail, and she said that she could see light. And we're like, no, it's your light reflecting off water or something. <laughs> we went down there. No, you could see light beaming in through the very top of that crevice. So we went up on the land surface, and there's no, like, there's no sinkhole. It's not like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's that one right there. No, it's a, it's a CRP field. It's a grass field. And we're, we, we, we kind of all space out, and we walk back and forth across this area where we kind of know where the cave is. And there was a hole in that hay field about the size of two or three basketballs. And we went up to it, and the grass is hanging over it. So you could see it there, but it, it looked like a, you know, a badger hole or something. Right. No dirt around it, right. no, no depression, just a hole in the grass. And you put your hand over it, the air was just air was howling coming. out of it. That was it. And we looked, you know, so we had to lay down and scooted our ways out there and got our high-powered light, caving lights out. Looking down in there, you could see way, way down in so that is scary. So, you know, what do you do? So we're going to get some plywood and set plywood yeah. over it. Oh, man. Right? Um, but then give, give it time. We're like, well, we need to fix the sinkhole uh, because we can't leave this open into the cave. It's not good for the cave. It's dangerous. So I rappelled through it. We took an excavator and the bucket and swung it out over the hole, and I hooked all my vertical gear on it, and I got on a rope, and I slipped down through the hole, and the, the hole, you know, was rubble and soil, and it belled way out. And then I was in midair all the way down for 40 feet <laughs> to a little false bridge that I stood on like this. And then I cleaned that off because there was all kinds of rock on it and stuff. And my ropes are right here, so I didn't want the rope to scratch off or peel off more right. rock. Then you went down another 45 feet to the cave floor, and then on the cave floor, if you moved over three feet, it went down another 70 feet to the water table. Wow. So if you fell through that hole, say you were pheasant hunting, you were trespassing, or maybe even had permission Mm -hmm. to go pheasant hunting, and you fell down that hole, no one would ever know where you went, and you wouldn't survive it. Um, There's lots of pictures of how we sealed it, we reamed it all out, built a bridge over it, basically poured concrete to seal it, and then backfilled it. So you wouldn't even know it's there, no. That's probably the 
most bizarre thing I've seen in Minnesota. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to visualize them, right? Yeah. And then, then we discover these things, and yeah, there's that realization of the complexity that it is the karst groundwater modeling is the hardest modeling to do because of these types of behaviors of 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 the hydrology of karst. Uh-huh. Now, if you do modeling of sand, it's com- it's it's different. Yes, there's preferential flow through sands, but sand doesn't create its own pathway, so to speak, based yeah. on these. Like when we have, we had a physical process, the folding of the tectonic plates that created the fracture paths that started to enlarge, which creates the flow path. Right, that 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 you have this physical fracturing first, and then you have a chemical process to dissolve the rock and a chemistry that occurs, and now you have the hydro- resulting hydrology. Yeah. So you're trying to model a contribution area to a drinking water management supply area. It may be complex in some cases, not, not all, but sometimes you're, you, there's a wild card, and that's the, oh, you know, we're, we're getting preferential flow from a direction we didn't anticipate right right so yeah it is it is hard to model and predict cars you know my famous saying was assume there is something going on before you assume there isn't (laughs) assume there may be a sinkhole in that area where there isn't one assume there may be a you know, because let, let's, yeah. you know, before we go, let's go stand and we'll look out over that hay field. Yeah. You say, oh, yeah, well, there's a sinkhole way over there. Right. But we're way away from that. We yeah. could We could build our hog barn here. We could put our manure storage area here. There's mm-hmm. no sinkholes here. And really, you're, you're right, we're out in the yeah. middle of that hay field. Right now, we are underneath that hay field. Yeah. And there is no sinkhole within 300 feet of where we are right now. And I see water. I see cracks. Yep. So and that's the three. The the three. So it's like three three types of water in karst. So we have the fractures that move water. So here we see a, the the base of a fracture, right? Mm-hmm. So the, it's open here. We could put our fingers in there, but you know that that fracture will close up, but still move water. Uh-huh. And then we have the conduits, which we're in right yeah. now. But then there's also the rock itself. See how this rock is damp? Yeah. Well, this rock is porous. We wouldn't think of it to be porous, but it is. And it stores water and moves water itself. So that's the three, call it three, yeah. the 3D effect or whatever, but that's where we yeah. see all three right here. And the sinkholes are the conduits. Are the conduits, yeah. And they're, they're typically conduits. open through, you know, enlarged fractures that reach the surface. Mm-hmm. It's not like the roof of a cave collapses. Now, that can happen, but it's extremely rare. And it's more likely in Minnesota to be a, a feature that existed like a fracture that, that was soil-filled through glaciation or erosion mm-hmm. and floods and water occur and clean it back out and pop a new hole up on the top. Mm-hmm. We say, well, oh, that's a new sinkhole. Well, technically it is, but it's... A sinkhole into a feature that always existed there mm-hmm. in the rock. This must really make you aware of the work you're doing on the surface. <laughs> you know, that you're farming and you're working with farmers and, and landowners. Just how vulnerable 
this whole thing is. And I guess how key soil is, because I was talking to Jeff about this, is there's that, you have that opportunity to filter that water or to slow it down or whatever. And then once it gets past that soil profile, that opportunity's kind of been lost. It's, oh, definitely. And, and, and sometimes we don't even have that opportunity if it goes through a direct conduit. Yeah, so, you know, the, the relatively thin soil, um, you know, could remove some bacteria and that. Uh, but, yeah, once it gets in here, there's no more filtering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's on the fast path. But here you have perennial flow, and once contaminants get into that perennial flow upstream, it could still get in there. Yeah. But then you have, you know, the tile drainage, the problems we're having with nitrates and the tile drainage. Well, that's, you know, here it's collecting from fields, dumping into those streams and dumping into the cave system. And nitrates are particularly, they're really a booger to deal with. Like, they really... They don't come in. out once they're in. Yeah. And, and same with chlorides. They, they're they excellent tracers because they they will stay with the water until the water cycle starts over. Uh-huh. It will not leave the water. They could be diluted. Uh-huh. Uh, but, and the only way it leaves the water is to be evaporated have you tested water in the cave system yep and it depends on what type of landscape you're under Um, but it tells that same story that we are learning elsewhere which is under row crop soybeans uh, corn and soybeans it's typically well over the drinking water standard 15 to 25 Mm -hmm. if you're under an alfalfa field um, it's less and then we also need to take into account the lag time. So that if you're under row crop where alfalfa hasn't been, it's pretty stable. But let's say that above us right now was an alfalfa field. That was seeded last year. So before that, it was a corn field. So it takes time, even from the cave drips, mm-hmm. like here, yeah, for that, that the residual, the lag time still exists. Right. Now, the more direct the conduit is and the quicker the water is. So they, you, you, because of this three, three types of water movement through rocks, you have quicker moving nitrates and you have slower moving nitrates. So we see that in the caves too. <laughs> but when you look at what are caves underneath in southeast Minnesota, and they are predominantly underneath farms. What are what are our drinking water aquifers affected most by? Well, if our, you know, if we have southeast Minnesota, which is sixty percent farmland, I think it's probably about that, maybe seventy mm-hmm. percent tillable land. You know, that's the biggest. It could have the biggest effect on karst aquifers. So, and then you put in, you know, like these added layers of the, comp- the complexity of mm-hmm. karst, a karst aquifer. You know, how do we know, like something that I would really, you know, as far as a caving goal, we have Holy Grail. As far as a water quality goal with farming, it would be, you know, w- what are best management practices? How are they helping? And how quickly will they help? And, and to what level will yeah. they help? If we implement cover crops, to what degree are we improving our water quality underneath the, the land surface mm-hmm. and to how quickly? Because, yes, we are doing a better job in many areas than we used to as farmers. And let's, let's continue that and let's measure it. Because if we can measure it and we can say at what time we will notice the 
benefits, then we're more likely to have uh, legislature take us serious, other scientists take us serious, farmers take me serious. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's the whole thing, bringing the whole thing together. For more on the relationship between farming, soil health, and groundwater, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode number 281 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly. If you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale. Western Minnesota musician for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.